0: Hola, hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese Med podcast. Today I have Diana Bamford as my guest. Diana, how are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm
1: very happy and pleased to be here with you.
0: I am really happy and pleased to have you because we talk about all of these things. We talk about mental health all the time, but I love that you are very even specific with Pre and postpartum, because I think that's something that's not talked about enough, especially within the Latinic community. So I can't wait to talk to you about it. But before we start all of the things, we always start with the wine. And I know you're drinking water tonight because you said you're feeling a little bit dehydrated, which is, you know, we good. Like I was telling you, we're no judgment. I can't be like, you have to drink wine. Nah, you can do whatever <laughs> you want. But I am drinking wine. Of course. And actually, this is the first time I've had Fatia Wines on the podcast, Mm -hmm. but this is the first time I'm drinking their wine. Let me see if we can get it on the... There we go. This is Fatia Wines. I am having their 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon from Sonoma Valley. So I'm really excited. Like I said, I have not tried this wine before. I don't know why I didn't drink it last time. Maybe I had two bottles of it. Maybe you sent me two bottles and Maybe I have had it. I don't know. <laughs> I think actually he had to have sent me two bottles because there's no way I would just not taste it while I was talking in. So salud, saludcita.
1: I do want to yeah. point out that my glass is one of the mole glasses. So if you're, it is. You know, it's like the Doña Maria
0: run, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. They serve, they my, have a double purpose. They have a double purpose. They I serve know, your mole and, mole. and you your aguita. Okay. So wait, okay. Two things for your mole. Cause I, you know, I don't have time to make that. Mole is an all day thing to make homemade mole. I don't have time for that. So I definitely do like semi homemade mole where I get the Doña Maria as the one I use. And then I add my own stuff to it. So do you use it as is, or what do you add to it for, to make your mole? I've used
1: this one often, but if I try to find like a, you know, a nice Mexican store that has, like, they just brought it from Oaxaca. I like to buy the little packages. But it's, uh, let's say Doña Maria, which is out there. We know everybody can get to it. I like to add a little bit of, uh, sometimes I'll just do consomme with a little bit of water. But I like chicken broth or some bone broth and mix it. And then I like to put cacao, cacao in it. And then depends. Maybe I'll put um, maybe a little bit of herbs, maybe some rosemary in it, depending on what I'm going to do. Because sometimes instead of putting it over the chicken, I have, like to have it on the side because not everybody in my family is a chicken uh, mole lover. So, uh, But I like to just do it with a little bit of chicken broth and mix it out really, really nice. And then add uh,
0: cacao, something to make it a little bit more bitter. So I add peanut butter to it. Ooh, Because it's what my mom told me to do. And I guess my grandma would make mole homemade, but she would make it like, and she would put peanut butter in it. So I put peanut butter in it. And that's, sorry, this is just really me. I'll put peanut butter and then I'll over toast bread. So it's a little bit burnt. And then use the burnt part and put that in there as well.
1: I'm going to have to try that. I have never heard the peanut butter, but. So let me tell you.
0: Yeah. So I do, yeah. And I put like, so I haven't made it in a while. Now I'm like, oh, I should make it. My ex, this was like years and years ago. I made mole and I did what my mom told me. She's like, add this, this, and this. And so I added the things that she told me. And then I took it to um, my then boyfriend's mom. And she was like, and straight from Mexico. Like she's straight from Mexico. And she was like, this is a really good Like, you know, adding the little things. And she was like, Did you make this homemade? And I was like, No. I told her what I did. And she was like, I've never had it. Like, she's like, I can't believe it. She's like, Whatever you did, it tastes amazing. Like this tastes really, really well, not amazing, probably. She's like, this tastes really, really good.
1: I'm gonna have to try the peanut butter. You got me with the peanut butter.
0: I know, right? You know, you think all these things and you know, I just don't have sometimes you just don't have time. So I'm I'm all about the semi-homemade things like to make things a little bit easier. Like I said, I don't have time to spend all day making mole. So I'm just like, "Mm, maybe not. Right. And then I'm starting to make some things a little bit more homemade, but also I'm trying to, and I'm trying to find new ways. And I know this kind of all goes in like health and wellness of all the things, but I'm also trying to find like healthier ways to do the Mm -hmm. things that I do because I love cooking and I love making Mexican food. But the way that we learn, and there is so many healthy Mexican foods out there. However, it's just the way that we make them, made them growing up, we're not as healthy. So I'm like looking at, so I'm always like looking at alternatives and looking from different regions and areas, especially like mariscos, because I love, like that is my favorite beyond like mm. mariscos seafood is my favorite type of food. So just really trying to find like different and healthier ways to even do the things that I already do or just learn new recipes from all over Mexico and Absolutely. other parts of Central and South America.
1: Absolutely. And right now when we're getting, well, San Diego is still going through their local summer. We're, I'm in San Diego. I know you are too. But we get these crisp mornings where we made like el cafecito, right? But a good atole. I just went to Puebla in May and got atole the way to make it healthier instead of using just regular milk, I use like coconut milk or almond milk to go with it. And That's oh, an that's idea.
0: Well, yeah. I get the coconut almond milk creamer from Trader Joe's. Oh, there you go. And it's there really, and yeah, I love the way it tastes. I don't have to add any addition. I mean, it's a vanilla, but it's a lot, like I don't have to add additional sugar on top of that. Yeah. Just enough. But yeah, it's like so good and perfect. Well, what about wine? What kind of wines are you drawn to I, or do you like or do you not, are you not a wine person probably your
1: listeners who listen you know to wine and chisme they know mm-hmm. i don't quite have a palate for wine that so what i like i moscato moscato is like i like the sweet wines yeah and uh, riesling I, uh, you know, anything. You really like that, the I sweet do. wines. <laughs> yes. And then I can have, you know, like I, when I'm on my inlands, they have, you know, they're a little bit more bitters ones and I'll have a glass here and there, but a sweet wine, that's where you get me. So I do, I'm not the person to pair it with something, you know, steak. It. sweet. Yeah. I want the same thing.
0: So, so there's a I, couple things I would say, try, if you ever come across it, try ice wine because ice wine is. Sweet, I'm sure you would love a dessert wine because dessert wines yeah. are, are a lot sweeter. But if you ever want to try a red that's not that's very like bougie like a Bougelet would be a really good. It's even lighter than a Pinot Noir. Ooh, um, okay, so I just say like if people have never if they're like, oh, I mean, I'm willing to try it, but I'm not really into it. Pinot Noir is a very versatile wine. Mm-hmm. You can have it with seafood or pasta with the red sauce. Like it can kind of go both ways. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I would say if you never try, if you're not a big red fan and you're willing to try a Beaujolais because it's even lighter. And usually that's, if you can handle that, then you might be willing to try other things. But if not, at least you have that, right? It's not sweet, but also it's not going to be like really overpowering. It's a very light wine. Oh, well, thank nice. you for
1: that. And I'm willing to try, you know, any wine. Like They'll be like, try this one. And I'll try them. It's just like, I don't feel I will be doing a disservice to the wine and to myself if I try to force myself to finish a glass that it just absolutely not mine. But I'm willing to try and be like, okay, give me a little bit more of that or... So thank you. Here, we you know, now we have the mole. We have the wine. Perfect. So can I pair that with some mole? Is that okay if I have it? It's the mole. I mean, it's a look,
0: sweet. I say, I mean, my, the mole might be overpowering to the yeah. wine, but you know what? <laughs> Try it if you like it. That's what, ma- honestly, that's yeah. really what matters, right? Sure. Like, And it's so funny. Let me just say this. When you're pairing wines with things, I always say like try the wine first, then take a bite of whatever you're eating and then try it again, because it actually changes the flavor of the wine. Got it. So even if you're having fruit, even if you're having whatever, like if you're having wine, taste it completely by itself, right? With no, and then take a bite of whatever you're eating and then take another drink. And then you'll see like, oh wait, this does not pair with this Or it does, or, oh, wow, this changes. Like, that's kind of how you start figuring it out, right? Of what you like, what you don't like, what's going to pair. Because also everybody has different flavor profiles. Mm -hmm. So somebody could say this pairs well with this, but your flavor profile might not agree with that. So I always just say, just, just do whatever makes you happy. That's ultimately like what feels good. I love that. I love that. (laughs) So let me read your bio and then we'll get into all of the chisme. So Diana uh, Curial Bamford, known as Dai, is a maternal mental health advocate, certified peer support specialist, postpartum energy therapist, and certified yoga instructor in Fallbrook, California. A survivor of severe prenatal mood and anxiety disorders, she's a dedicated born member with Thrive Wellness Collective and a member and volunteer with the Postpartum Health Alliance. After 13 years as an executive assistant, Di left her job in 2019 to raise awareness about PMADs, which affect an estimated one in five women in the US. She noticed a significant lack of understanding about PMADs among medical providers and those interacting with prenatal and postnatal parents. To combat this, Di offers PMAD awareness presentation in her community and is currently collaborating with nursing students at Cal State San Marcos, and she's also writing a book about her postpartum experience. Further demonstrating her commitment to improving maternal mental health and supporting those struggling with PMADs. Ooh, girl! I mean, if anybody has listened to before, they know. I mean, I'm engaged now, but <laughs> um, but really, I've I've never been married. I don't have any kids. But these are things that are really, really important to talk about because I. Honestly, don't remember anybody in my family talking about postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. I think, especially within the Latinx community, we tend to just push through everything. Don't to, and women in general don't take care. They put everybody in front of themselves. They don't take care of themselves until it gets to kind of like the point of there's no other option. So when we were talking, and I've met you through a mutual friend, oh. Ruby. Who I love so much. And I'm so glad that we're connecting on this level because it's really, really important to to talk about. So is this something, I mean, obviously I, I know most of the time we don't talk about this, like I said, but is this something that you were aware of growing up? Is this something like, did you have the same experience? This was never talked about growing up. This was, is this something you witnessed growing up, like prior to having your own experience with it?
1: No, no, I actually I I never it was never talked about in my family, you know, being Latina, like you said, we push through. We just anybody just with mental health in general, right? If somebody's feeling depressed, you know, why will you go to a psychologist? No estás loca, no estás loco. Like it's mm-hmm. it's nice for crazy people is how I grew up how it was viewed, not as a tool of support. So when I I actually had a miscarriage in 2022, And this is why I'm going to prefix like this. Just for all your listeners, I may speak of things that could be triggering. So in any moment, please make sure to maybe stop and then come back a little later. Because it can be triggering for some people sometimes when I speak. One of the biggest things that I say is like every time I I do presentations, conferences and uh, workshops, it's not to scare, it's just to bring awareness to subjects that we We think we know a little bit about it, but in reality, when we hear about it, we didn't know, and we don't know why we don't know until somebody brings awareness to it. So, in 2022, I had um, miscarriage. I was really young; I was 21 at the time. Wait, 2022?
0: You mean like 2002? I'm sorry. In
1: 2002. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> not 20, that's That would have been last year. Yeah. No. And I was really young, I was like, so wait, I did ah, it. together. <laughs> <not. laughs> sorry. In 2002, I had a miscarriage, which it was dismissed. I was 21 at the time. And it was just like, Miha, you're too young. I was actually grieving my whole process with that miscarriage. The medical system really failed me. Uh, they treated me as like a young girl. I had to have a DNC they told me that the sack where the baby was, was misshapen and I I was going to lose it regardless. So that I needed to go in and they they did the DNC. Um, But when I left, nobody even talked to me that I could be having some feelings because my body was pregnant and suddenly was not. It was only three months in. But when you're kind of like, well, at first I was a little scared because I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm pregnant. But then it was exciting. And then it was gone. And my family was just like, Mija, don't worry. You're so young, you're healthy. You'll have more children. So just to know that, just kind of keep that in the back of your head as we move forward. Then a year later, I became pregnant again. And I had my son in 2003 and he was, I was a Navy wife for five years. So I was alone. All my pregnancy, my ex-husband, my husband at the time, he um, left when I was three months pregnant and came back when the baby was two years old. Wait, two years. Oh my what am I doing with dates? <laughs> two months, two weeks old, two weeks old. I'm fast forward in life here. Two weeks old. So that whole pregnancy, I never I've never had the opportunity to have somebody be touching my belly, rubbing my feet, talking to the baby. He was gone the entire time. When I was becoming closer. It was a beautiful pregnancy. He was born on November 1st in 2003. It was a beautiful pregnancy, but also it was summer pregnancy. So towards the end, it was hot. I was really big towards the end. I got really, really big. And I actually had a guate de agua, a water twin. I had two placentas and another bag that develops, but it never developed a baby. I actually had a midwife at Balboa
0: Hospital. Guata in Mexican Spanish is twin. Because I was yeah, asking yeah, I somebody cuata. else, and, <laughs> Okay, the, the, and I apologize, just the reason I say that is because I was talking to somebody else, and oh, when I was in New York, I was talking to two Dominicanas, and they said a different word, and I was like, yeah. wait, what's the word? I'm like, oh, we always say cuata, and they're like, what is cuata? I'm like, cuata is twin, because that's what we would always call my cousins, yeah. cuata, cuata, cuata. <laughs>
1: Los cuates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the twins, so I had a water twin, which is what they called it. I had to placentas. And towards the end, they said, you know what, you are, I went for my checkups and nothing. 40 weeks hit. So hopefully not anymore. But usually our culture was like, okay, by 40 weeks, you need to already kind of have a baby. you 40 weeks that's it. That's nine months. You need to have a baby. So I was not having the baby. Baby was born at 40 weeks and five days. But before that, there was a lot of fear. What if something happens? What if the baby dies? What, you know, like all this fear from my family about the baby. So I became very fearful. And I had him on a Monday. And the Friday before, I was at my midwife appointment. And I told her I'm crying in the office. I'm like, get him out. I'm like, I've given this turkey an eviction notice. He's not coming out. I'm like, get him out. I'm like, also because my fear that I'm going to lose a baby and now a full-term baby. I ended up, my water ended up breaking on the, the September 30th. I had him November 1st. The delivery was really tough. I was in labor not too long, only for, I think it was about like 13 hours. He was actually nine pounds thirteen ounces. So mm. first they told me that he was probably that I was just really big because of the extra placenta and all the extra things. No, in he there. was a big baby. <laughs> no, he was a big baby. So at the hospital, it was his birth certificate has the name of like six doctors because doctors kept coming in to check me and try to see if the baby would come out, and nothing like just nothing was happening until finally like the big kahuna an attendee came in and said, we need to get this baby out. I was exhausted. I pushed for like three and a half hours. He was actually pulled out with forceps. So I did not consent for an episiotomy. They just told me they were doing episiotomy. So that's when they cut the perineum to make more space. But the perineum is is like such a thin layer of skin that if you cut it, it's like ripping. So it just like it Tears quickly, and it gave me a three-degree cut. A three-degree cuts you all the way to your rectum. So it when they pull him him with forceps and his face, till this day, my mom is like, his head, I cannot get out of my head. That his head was so misshapen due to the forceps, and the forceps were like so implanted on his cheeks there, they just did everything. And I heard the doctor, the attendee, who was not the one delivering the baby, he was the one telling them, use the forceps, do this, do that. It's like, oh, she's not a candidate for having vaginal births. And in my head, I'm thinking, why on earth do you put me through this if I'm not a candidate for having vaginal births? And at the moment, and here comes the fear and not knowing, I felt very alone in my birth experience because my mom, my sister, and my cousin were in the room because my husband at the time was deployed. It was something with at least with my family, it's like, you're not a doctor. The people with the white coats are the doctors. You don't know. You trust them. But I felt like nobody advocated for me in any time. And you know, my mom's English wasn't the best. My sister did not speak English. My cousin did, but she just felt like so much was happening and she couldn't feel like she wanted she didn't want to overstep in any way. But when I needed happens
0: so mm-hmm. much in our community is oh you yeah. trust the doctor you just do what the doctor says we don't often advocate for ourselves I mean yes. it's like we're barely learning how to do that yes. you know what I mean and we yes. don't just like oh well the doctor said this and we just particularly our community just put so much trust into doctors and the sad thing is, is they're not advocating for us either mm-hmm. So I can't imagine how you were feeling. Like you, you truly were being failed, unfortunately, because our community is so like, oh, they're the professionals, let them do. But then you don't, there's nobody advocating for you. There's nobody saying, wait, what's going on? Why is this? If she's not a candidate, why are we going through with it? Like all of these things, I can't even imagine, like, especially going through it. I'm sure it's like a whirlwind in your head, but then you look back and you're like, what the hell?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a lot of what I'm uncovering as I'm writing my journey with postpartum in the book and uh, with the assistance of a therapist, because things do trigger me that come up, things that I hid for so long that come up and trigger in memories. But like at that time there in the hospital, like they t- I lost a lot of blood. So they took a lot of time to sew me back together and all that. One thing that I want to clarify, only about 1% of women are not able to give birth vaginally. We, our bodies are designed to give birth vaginally. The reason why they wouldn't be able is due to bone structure. Not too big. What happened with me is that my baby needed more time. I needed perinatal massages that I needed to know way before. I needed to have this awareness. but And the baby just came fast. Everything they were doing was for the baby to come out half fast because forceps were not needed. So I did not break any bones. So saying you're not a candidate, even though at that moment I'm like, well, give me a, you should have given me a C-section because I did not know any of this information until years and years later. And I broke no bones. So I could deliver vaginally it just needed, my baby needed more time. But after that, when they moved me into the room, I I don't know if anybody's a fan of hospitals, maybe the nurses and the doctors that work there. But anytime I'm in the hospital, I want to get out as fast as I can. If I'm ever in for surgery, I'm like, I need to, you're telling me 24 hours, I want to be gone. I don't like hospitals. So the next day, the nurse told me, he's like, well, I really wanted to go home. And she's like, well, if you pee and you shower, you can go home. And I was like, Perfect. So, my sister was with me in the room and the baby the next day, and I peed and then I showered. And when I showered, I almost had a stroke. I passed out. They came and got me, and they're like, Oh my gosh, if my sister would not have pulled that little thing in the bath, and I was just like, right. She would have had a stroke. Her blood pressure went down so much because they were offering me blood transfusion, and I was refusing blood transfusion. So, but like, but if you do this, So after having, almost having a stroke, they're like blood transfusion is a non-negotiable. Like you have to have it. And of course I did, and I felt so much better. So all these things that I'm mentioning and why I'm sending these details here is because these are part of the risk factors associated with PMADs. So you talk about PMAT. so the P-M-A-D-S. So it's PMADs, which is perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. That's the new name given to postpartum depression because women are not only depressed anymore. Women are experiencing, and it's perinatal because it starts during, it can start during pregnancy or postpartum. So they can experience anxiety, depression, obsessive and compulsive disorder, PTSD, bipolar disorder, bipolar 1, bipolar 2, and in some cases, psychosis. And that's when we see the tragedies. But also we're seeing the tragedies. Maybe if you saw it on TV, heard it in the news, we've had some recent tragedies in the East Coast. And actually, I believe it was two in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, They were experiencing depression. The awareness is what is most important to know like, okay, what are the risk factors associated with this and how can, what can I do about it? So for me, how you ask, like, how did you learn about this? So just keeping in mind, how was my miscarriage that was not ever resolved? Like it was dismissed. My delivery, my pregnancy, happy, but alone. And then my pregnant, my delivery was, I had a traumatic birth. Then from there, you know, almost at stroke, they gave me a three degree cut. I had to go back to the hospital two times so they can use a catheter to burn you down there in your vagina because I had got an infection because that's a, a gentle area, right? And you're wearing, I just had a baby vaginally. So we have those big undies and the big pads and those that so that does not help with healing the wound that they're doing. So my husband came back two weeks after the baby was born. We had an apartment here in San Diego, but then he was able to take time off. It was almost, I think, I can't remember if it was two or three months that he took off. So he's like, hey, why don't we move to, we had a home in Mexico. He's like, why don't we move to Mexico? And then when I start work, I can just cross the border back and forth. I'm from Tecate. So he's like, I go through TJ, cross the border to the Navy ship and then come back. So we did because we're like, okay, we're a young couple. We need to save money. We don't need to pay rent in Mexico. We'll be there. So now I was left alone with the baby all day.
0: Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Minute. When he came back, were you already experiencing the PMADs at this point, were you already going through it? And what kind of support, if any, were you getting from your husband outside of like, okay, let's move to Mexico. I'm going to take some time off was because I also feel like, and again, I've never experienced this and I won't ever experience this, but oftentimes like we have these things, like I'm very fortunate that my fiance, like I get really horrible periods, Mm -hmm. really horrible, like debilitating. Like at this Mm -hmm. point, it's traumatic just even talking about it. Right. Like I could bleed almost, you know, at some point, even if it's not full on bleeding, I'm something is being released like three weeks out of the year or out of the month practically. But I'm really fortunate that he like tries to take care of me, especially when it's like really bad. And he's like, how can I help you? And he's Fully, fully takes care of me, rubs my feet, rub, puts the massager on my oh. back if I ask him to, brings, like, like he just fully takes care of me. Were you able to receive, like, kind of the emotional and physical and, and mental support that you, from your husband at that time? Or was it something that you felt like was lacking at that moment because, or you just didn't know how to even ask for it?
1: It was all about the baby. So this is one thing that I do when I see a lot of mothers is that it's all about you while you're pregnant. And then the baby comes and it's all about the baby and we forget about the mamas. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I do want your listeners to be aware of is that the baby blues, most of us have heard about the baby blues. The baby blues lasts only about three weeks, anything more than three weeks it will be PMATs, it will be perinatal mood and side disorders. And with baby blues, you'll be crying, you have different emotions, the hormones drop three to four, five days postpartum. We're going back into that balance. When the placenta is released, our hormones go from, you know, thousands to zero. So there is that hormonal imbalance, but something, you know, then if something continues, then it's PMATs. So for me, there was a lot happening too fast. Everything. We moved to Mexico within weeks, like probably baby was maybe a month old by the time we moved to Mexico. Everything was really early and everything was about the baby and I was acting fine. I began to feel, have certain feelings of like being more depressed, but how can I? I'm a new mother. Why am I feeling unhappy? You know, that's not a good mom. I'm not a good mom if I'm going to begin to talk about these feelings that I'm having. So he was supportive because I was not Showing any signs of anything being wrong. But more time passed, and I began as I was isolated at home, and I would talk to my mom over the phone. Uh, sometimes I'll have one visitor, but I began to have feelings that, um, that I didn't want my baby. Like I just, you know, like I never had that feeling of like the baby comes out, and you're like, I'm just in love with this baby. I I never had that feeling. So with him, it was just like, I know he's my baby, but I was put to the ringer to bring him (laughs) into this world. So those feelings were coming. And then I began to have, uh, I began to hear voices. So I began to hear voices just to kind of push the baby, just kick the baby, push the stroller, like things like that. And uh, it began to scare me a lot. I was like, oh my, and they begin to imagine. get a lot stronger. And then I begin to hear voice; voices a lot stronger, a lot stronger. And then I still said nothing. My husband would come home every night. We would chat, shower, the, you know, bathe the baby, all the things. And I still said nothing because I was, I had shame. How can I, as a new mother with this baby that we've been, you know, I, you know, got off the birth control to have this baby, to do all this. It's a blessing. How come I could be having these This feelings? is a baby this, that you planned for. You want it. Yes, yes, yes. How can I not want it? That's not a good mother. So I began to have then uh, suicidal thoughts. Well, the baby's better off without me because what mother has these type of feelings? And after that, I, you know, it began to get a little stronger, a little stronger, and then it began to hurt the baby get rid of the baby, or if this is a too much of a bad world for the baby, like both of you need to be out, you know, protect your baby by harming my baby. And it began until I had a really awful experience one day, I'm not going to go into too much of a detail for that, but it was, it was really hard. It was my rock bottom. Baby was safe, but it, the, this time when the thoughts came, I had the impulse to act on it. So that scared me because by that time I was already picking up objects. So I would pick up the fork that I was going to use and the baby was around and it's just like, step the baby, right? But I would drop the fork and run away. And it began until I had that one experience where everything just kind of overpowered me and I was able to catch myself and be like, no stop what I doing, put the baby in a different room and then cry and then go back and doing what I needed to do. And I still told nothing to my husband that night. So the only difference from all the other nights that I had similar experience is that that night I could not stop crying. It was the only difference. And that night he pressed me and until this day, I thank him for pressing me so hard on what's going on. And I just wouldn't tell him until finally I told him and he's like, Tomorrow, we're going back to San Diego, all of us. We're going straight to the hospital and we're going to see what's going on. So the next day we went back and went straight to see my midwife, didn't go to the ER. And she's like, you're experiencing postpartum depression. Got me a psychologist, a psychiatrist, put me on medication, antipsychotics at that time. And just heavy medication, Prozac, anything I've tried back then, everything you can imagine and then i was on my way my ultimate diagnosis with it was i was experiencing postpartum depression anxiety ptsd from my traumatic birth and obsessive compulsive disorder but the hallucinations that i had auditory hallucinations they were not enough to call me psychosis case because i still was i was able to know that that was not right usually when somebody's experiencing a psychosis or a a visual hallucinations, they're not able to distinguish what's real and what's not. So mine didn't quite get there. I had sub symptoms. So I had just enough of the symptoms and that was really scary. So that's when my family came in. Okay. So then they're like, okay, she needs help. We need to help her in this way. And our families are always going to, they love us. So they're going to try to help us the way they think we need help. Right. Not the way we need to be helped. So it was so much that at some point they actually took me to one of my aunts who struggles with mental health, has severe cases of like dual personality. She's taking care of it, but uh, she's under medication and her protocols. But I did not know. Suddenly we went up to LA to see my uncle and my aunt, and I didn't realize that it was an intervention, what they were basically taking me to, to have an intervention about my postpartum. So what? that I needed
0: to, yeah, to, it was like, you need I, to talk to her. I can understand why it would happen, right? Just, just being Latina, like just within our culture, I understand like why that would happen because there have been times where I experienced depression in high school and it took a lot. So often it takes so much for us to say what's actually wrong. First of all, Di, thank you so much for just sharing this. And I know you're going to be sharing even more because this is a, yeah, I could see why this could be very triggering for somebody. And somebody who, like myself, doesn't have kids, I get the mental health part. I get the depression part because I've actually dealt with clinical depression where I had to be on meds and stuff like that. But I think it's, you know, the thing that we have to remember is anything can cause a chemical imbalance in our brain. Mine was a shift of of life from growing up in San Diego and then all of a sudden we moved to Albuquerque 2 weeks before my junior year of high school and mm-hmm. that major shift caused it caused like a chemical imbalance because i i didn't is something that my brain didn't want to accept and it caused a chemical imbalance in my head and it caused like depression and yeah. and everything and i still have to like be wary of the signs of certain things right but to experience this There's so many people that would be like, I don't understand. How could you hear these thoughts? How could you want to hurt your bait? Because we've heard these extreme circumstances where it has been psychosis and women have harmed Mm -hmm. or unalived their children. And we, as people don't understand it. Like, I think a majority of people just don't understand, like, how does it get to that point? Or how do you understand? And so- first of all, thank goodness for your ex who was like, pushed you. Right. Mm-hmm. And was like, let's get you the help you needed because there could be men who just are like, you're fine. You're okay. You're until, yeah. until the point that of no return, so to speak. Yeah. But this happens in our community. Like you need an intervention or, Oh, this you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. You need a snap out of it. Yeah. You know? So I'm really, yeah. I want to hear like exactly what they're, Their thing is, but I just wanted to stop for a moment and let people kind of just take everything that you said in, but also remember, like, we don't know. And if you've experienced this, like my heart is with you because it does not sound fun. It sounds like torture, to be perfectly honest. It sounds like torture because in your case, you have this baby that you planned for, that you wanted. And now every instinct is saying like, no, and telling you like no, the baby's better off without you. The baby's better off not being alive. The baby's like all of these things like completely the opposite of of what you intended and what you planned for. So, just be mindful as we continue, like as the, as I continues the conversation. You can stop and pause and take a breath, and you know if you can't listen to this episode, it's perfectly okay. If you can, like, this is obviously a very sensitive and powerful subject, but we will take a moment, you know, every, every little bit, just so you can take a breath and really absorb what's, what's being said. And just understand that you don't know what somebody's mental health situation is and I will go into like how to help as well and how you can seek help and mm-hmm. how you can help others. but. She's doing this through her own story. So continue.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's so important to tend to yourself as you're listening and triggers can come. So while this intervention was going on, I was already in that I went to see my aunt, right? That are my family. That's the way they thought they could help me. They were helping me by taking me to my aunt to talk to her. But for me, it was very triggering. Because I was already on medication, I was seeing my psychiatrist, my psychiatrist, I was in a support group, and suddenly, here I am, and I go into, my family doesn't trust me enough yet. And one of the things, right before moving forward with that, is like, why does this happen? How come she got these thoughts? Because I never felt safe to tell anyone as soon as I was having these feelings. I never felt safe to, you know, because of the shame, the stigma that you're a new mother, is a baby's a blessing and you're supposed to be happy. That is it. Those are our choices. You got a baby. How can you be all sad there? You can't. Like, that's what my culture was telling me. You have to be a good, you know, in order to be a good mother, you have to be happy. So how could I feel comfortable sharing that I had these thoughts with anybody in my family? And now when I talk to my mom about it and we cry together and she's like, you should have told me, but I, even though I knew she loved me and all that, it was like, I was disappointing her and I was disappointing myself in this process. So that's why, why things become tragic. That's why the tragedies do happen. And we hear about these awful tragic cases is because they don't feel comfortable sometimes speaking in because it's not safe because society has not made it safe because we're not normalizing maternal mental health. And that's why things do snowball. And other than that, if they do get try to get the help, the system can fail them a lot of the times and they can actually regress. So after having that intervention with my family there, I actually felt like, okay, my family doesn't trust me. I thought I was doing better, but apparently in their eyes, I'm not. So where do I go? I go back into my thoughts, right? I allow those intrusive thoughts. And believe me, all parents have intrusive thoughts, okay? But sometimes those thoughts will be intrusive, will range from mild, medium to severe. So mild, moderate, severe. And that's where we really need to keep an eye on like where are our thoughts and how consistent they are. So after having all that, you know, having the baby and going through that, getting a little better. I was in a support group here in San Diego at Mary Birch Hospital. If you are here in San Diego, Mary Birch has a great postpartum support group. And I had that, that it was really supporting me and it was fantastic. And I was on medication. I was like on track doing better. And from there, one time, my husband at the time was on the boat for like a one day trip out. I was with my mom. We came back to San Diego. We moved back to San Diego. And so I wouldn't be alone because I couldn't be alone with the baby. He went on a little trip and my therapist had said, if you ever run out of medication, you can call me or you can go to the ER. So I, mommy brain, you know, and everything was going on. I didn't realize that I had run out of medication and I was very religious with my medication. I wanted to make sure to not Miss it because I did not want the thoughts coming back. So I ran out of vacation and I told my mom, Can you stay with the baby so that I can go to the ER instead of calling my therapist? Because it was like a Wednesday night, like 7 p.m., and I did not want to bother my therapist. So I said, I'll go to the ER. They're going to help me. She said to go. So I go to the ER. They finally call me back. I go back. There's two interns there trying to get my intake. I tell them only a little bit of what I'm experiencing and why I'm there. An attendee came in, or I don't know if it was our chief resident, and she decided that I was a threat due to what I was saying. I was a threat to my baby, and I was a threat to myself, and they locked me up in the loony bin. So I knew that was happening. They were being too nice, and then I wanted to leave, and they wouldn't let me leave. It's like you're in jail. They're taking all your things. They're stripping you down. And they did all that and put me in. It was supposed to be, a, I believe it was like a 72 hour hold, but I was only there for 24 hours. But, but still,
0: I can't imagine like you're going to seek help. You're under a doctor's care because psychiatrists are mm-hmm. doctors. They go to medical school. They can prescribe medications. So you're under a doctor's care and you're doing what they told. And now you're being told you're crazy, basically. Yes. And you're a, you're a threat you're really trying to stop it, right? You're trying to, you're not at that point. Oh my gosh. So that happens.
1: And unfortunately, I believe it continues to happen due to the lack of awareness and education. And by another
0: woman. Yeah. And by another woman.
1: I was very angry for a very long time. I was very angry. There was a really sweet nurse in the psych ward who I felt seen by. She just kept telling me, I know you're not crazy. She's like, just stop. I need you to stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. I'm hearing people scream, people kicking. You know, I'm in a room with somebody else who keeps turning. You know, they can't like sleep. They're not screaming, but I can just see them that they're like, they're not comfortable. And I'm scared, you know, I, this, all this is happening. And I just couldn't stop crying. And she's like, you need to stop crying. She's like, if they you continue to cry, they're going to medicate you. And they're going to keep you more time. But she was very sweet. I just felt like she was really trying to help me. And I think that did help a lot. The next day, they told me I had a phone call and it was my psychologist. And she's like, what are you doing there? She's like, did you not tell them that you are under care? I was like, I told them everything. I told them I was just here for medication. I can't get that medication off the streets. Like, I was clearly like, it all your information. But they decided to still lock me up. At that point, and they had the power to do so. So they did, but that really regressed me. I couldn't be in near hospitals now. I felt very scared. Anytime they were like, let's just go visit somebody in the hospital. It was like, nope, they're gonna see right through me. They're gonna lock me up in whatever hospital that is. It regressed me tremendously. And from there, I began to develop the thoughts of hurting myself kind of came back, but they were much more milder. So I worked in the fashion industry for a long time, so I was always wearing really funky. They always knew, oh, D wears funky clothes, right? So because of that, it was an advantage to me. So I used to wear, it was hot, it was a summer, but I used to wear like gloves halfway. It was like a little piece of, you know, gloves from here to here. But I put those back on because what I was doing, I was scratching bloody my forearms in order to cope with the thoughts Mm. coming through, but people will see me, we'll go, we'll have play dates, all that. And they just thought, you know, these is weird and she's doing her thing and that's <laughs> fine, and, which it was fine. But I was actually due to that situation at the ER, it brought so much anxiety that every time I had a thought and I wanted to like scream or latch out, I would actually harm myself until my therapist is like, I need you being coming with those gloves. She's like, take him off. <laughs> and she saw, and she's like, oh my gosh, this needs to stop. And so, you know, we, it just brought me back tremendously. And I just did not feel safe. I was like the people that were supposed to help me fail me. So who can I trust? So it was hard even to trust my therapist for a while because I'm like, is she going to call Pert and they're going to knock on my door and they're going to take my baby? Which nod, she was, she was fantastic. She helped me tremendously and really helped saved my life in many ways what did Um, your
0: family say when they put you in the psych ward like once you came out because obviously or were you able to call your mom and tell her what happened or like what was the response from your family like did the support from your family and your now ex-husband get better at that point or did they just not know what to do or what to say they didn't really know what to
1: say I was like jail you get one phone call (laughs) I got one phone call And the phone call I did was to my mom to tell her I'm not coming home and she has to stay with the baby. Because if I didn't call her, she would be like, where is she? What's going on? So I called her and told her that they were locking me up and I was crying. So I actually think that probably she's the one that reached out to my therapist. Somebody reached out to my therapist. That's why I was able to be out in 24 hours instead of a 72-hour hold So I think that's just talking to my mom about it. Till this day, I I never really knew. I need to find out who called my therapist, but I got just to tell my mom. And I remember being on the phone and crying and being like, they're going to keep me. They're not letting me go. And and she's very scared on the other side. She's like, but the baby's going to be fine. You know, baby's going to be fine. I'm going to stay with the baby, but it's going to be fine. And after the day I got out, I had to go straight to my therapist. She's like, they're gonna let you go. You're gonna come straight to me. And I did. I went there. And then after that, I just wanted to go home to my baby. So went home, they upped my medication. And then it was just the healing process. Continue to come, continue to do all these things. But they were just like they didn't really know what to do. So there was how long
0: did you go through this? Because obviously now you've kind of shifted from being the person who went through it to educating. And giving people resources. How long did that go? Because that doesn't feel like that's something that's just gonna magically happen overnight. It feels like a very, very long journey. And then at what point, from in that journey, did you go from, you know what, now it's time for me to educate other women and help them and go from being the one who is being affected by it to the one helping those being affected? So it took me till 8, 2018, but what
1: happened when I was put in the psych ward, I believe my son was about eight months. And when he turned one, my husband decided that he didn't want to be married and that he was leaving us. We had an apartment. It was under his name. We had one car. I had not worked for a year. And the day that our son turned one, he said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to let the apartment get evicted. I'm going to go live on the ship and I'm going to let the car get repo. So you can figure something out. So I went into just barely getting out, kind of getting a little bit better with my whole postpartum. I was still very in the depths of it. He pulled the rug underneath me and I was like, okay, survival mode. I need to get a job. I need to get a car. I need to get a place to live because he's leaving us. So that was it. So that did not help. That regressed me again, but I had to go into survival, do all that. Between that time, got an apartment, got a job, my car for transportation. Like I literally had to borrow car. I had to live with my aunt for a little bit. In the meantime, I was trying to get a place to live on my own. When all that was going on, he was still like, maybe we should try it again. Maybe we should not. And being young, you know, and okay, well, in love, you try and try. And then I became pregnant again. So, became pregnant, and he's like, "Oh no, I'm gone. Have an abortion. Do whatever you want." I told you, I weren't. I'm out. So that's when he was really out, and I hit the reality of like, "Oof, this is rock bottom." Like he's really not coming back. And when that happened, I went through the entire pregnancy alone, uh, not because he was in deployment, just by his choice of not being around. Baby was born by C-section because. My previous delivery was so yeah. rough, and they're like, "You have to have a C-section." And I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna have a C-section." And that baby was born at 39 weeks because it's a scheduled C-section. And uh, 39 weeks, he was born in 2006, and he was eight pounds four ounces. So I have really big babies. If I would have waited until 40, and weeks, you're little, you're little. I am a yes, I'm I'm a more petite, and these big, gigantic babies that I have. So they, with him, I was not fully out of my postpartum, like I was still having a lot of these feelings. And one thing that I want to kind of destigmatize is that they say postpartum, you know, perinatal mood on side disorders or postpartum depression only lasts one year. That is a lie. There is no, especially if it's not taken care of. It can last a very long time if you never bring any awareness to it, if you never take care of that, if you never address it in any way. So I was not completely healed from it yet. I was getting better when my husband decided to leave. So that regressed me. And then and in then, the way, I just
0: want to also say when he leaves, do his benefits leave as well? No, he because was you have kids with that. Yes. Okay. He kept, left me benefits
1: till 2008. When you had your second baby, the PMATs come back? So I was already under medication throughout the pregnancy. I was on medication because of everything that has happened. So when the, when I had the second baby, I no longer had that obsessive compulsive disorder in those thoughts. I had a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety with him. So with the second baby, I lost again, a lot of blood during the delivery and it, it was C-section. So this time they said you need two pints of blood instead of one. So, For me, it was a non-negotiable. Due to what my previous pregnancy was, I needed the blood. So I just said yes. And they told me I was not a candidate to having more children. They're like, we're going to tie your tubes, we suggest. And I said yes. Knowing what I know now, all that was done wrong. All that was done wrong. One, I did not break any bones with my first child. There was no consent for episiotomy. I could have had my second child vaginally deliver if I would have known what I know now. It would have been more time. And I would have been a candidate to have more children. So in a way, I was like thinking back. I know this is going to be very out there, but it's like, okay, just like sterilize another woman. So we're done with babies here and just be done. So I just felt like my rights were never really, one, read completely, like, I was young. I was like, sure, I don't want this to happen again. Like they told me you can die if you have a third baby. So using that fear tactic was not supporting me in any way, but I decided to type my tubes. So I have my two life children and my baby angel. And that was that. So after that, I got on my own. I began to pick myself up. now I have two young children and an infant and a three-year-old. And I had to go through life, you know. And as Latinas, we have to push through. You have to do, and you have to do. I still have a lot of um, support, like, from the family. But one of the things was, like, the first baby, it was, like, I stopped birth control in order to get pregnant. So it was, like, everybody was waiting for this desired baby. Second baby was, like, what are you thinking? How could you get pregnant? Your marriage is in shambles. What are you doing? I felt like nobody wanted him in a way. It's just like you made a wrong choice. What it was really interesting is like with my first son, I didn't feel that immediate love, right? I didn't feel that immediate love. And with the second one, I felt, even though it wasn't true, but I felt it as he was so unwanted that I needed to love him so much. And I had an awful pregnancy with him. I went into the ER like twice. I passed out, you know, several times, just things that just put me, led me to the ER. Um, I had constant anxiety. My family were just kind of trying to support me, but almost like at a distance, right? Kind of right. like a, with a little bit of a, out of a distance. So, which which it was challenging. But moving through all that, it took me a while. So, I I remarried. The divorce was finalized in two thousand eight, but we were separated since two thousand four. We finally did the whole thing in 2008. And I actually met my husband, who I'm married to, who've been together for almost 16 years, 15 years. And I met him in 2007, in December of 2007. We married in 2016. And he adopted my two children. My ex-husband, after the divorce, he said, you get custody of everything. I don't want anything to do with them at all. I'm just not, you're the mom, do the thing. So he gave me all the rights. So when we married, my husband was able to legally adopt him. So in 2017, they're legally adopted. The last time my ex-husband, their biological father saw them, my oldest was three years old. He was living on deployment and he was on the docks. And I told him daddy was living on a ship. And that's the story that we fed him for a long time. As time went by, told him the truth, because I always want to have as much truth with my children and be as honest and open as I can. And the youngest, the last time he saw his biological dad, he was eight months old and he's going to be 17 next month. He was never, they never had a relationship. So they're happy kids. They have a
0: loving father figure. It was always said to me because I have a, a, I call my biological father, my sperm donor. I have Mm -hmm. a sperm donor and I have a dad. And Growing up, it was always like any guy can make a baby, but it takes a real man to raise one. Yes. Yes. And I think you appreciate it as you get older. Your boys are going to appreciate Mm -hmm. it more and more and more and more as they get older. Because when I was young, I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. I understood it. But now, like, my dad is just the most amazing man. You would never think that we weren't blood. He would die for me. Like, I have no doubt in my mind of that. You know what I mean? So as your boys continue to get older, they will appreciate it in a way that is really hard to explain if you've never, if that, if you've never gone through that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I just remember where like I was at that age too. And I appreciate it. But now that I'm in my forties, like once I got into like my 30s, my mid twenties, my thirties, and now my forties, you just appreciate it in a whole other way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No. And they love him. They know that's their dad. That's, that's it. And I always told them, if you have questions about your biological dad, like I have their, his number, he knows because we had kept in contact throughout the years. Haven't talked to him in a long, long time. He's like, if they ever want to reach out to me, they can He remarried and has two daughters. And he was really adamant that I tell the boys that they had two siblings, two daughters, and I did because I don't want to hide anything. People were telling me, "Don't tell them. Why do they need to know?" I'm like, I rather them always knowing the truth from me rather than suddenly I'm family member or somebody else yeah. and being like, "Mom, why didn't you tell me?" Absolutely not. I don't hide anything from my kids. And so that's kind of happened when I met my husband. On one of our few dates, in I told him that I was still deep and you know, my youngest was like 15 months old. And I was like, I'm still in deep depression and anxiety. And I'm experiencing this. And I have had these types of thoughts and basically lay it all on the table. Either you take me or you leave me, but I'm not playing games. Like I am a mother of two and I have no time to, to figure something out. So it was really tough. So In 2018, I began to, as I began to get better, and I think healing continues later on. And I do have to say that I have, now the memories are coming back, but I actually blocked out, blocked off my son, my oldest till kindergarten. I don't have a memory of him being two years old or three years old. I know he is there and we, I see myself in the pictures but I block it off, and I didn't have. I knew I loved my son, but I didn't have that overwhelming feeling of I, I love him like I did with his brother, the youngest, because I always felt like he wasn't wanted, right? So that's why I had it until he was fourteen. So my oldest was fourteen. One day I just woke up and I had this overwhelming, just like I am so in love with my son. It just came, like it just. It just popped, mm-hmm. and it was like the most beautiful feeling. Like I just, I, I, I love him so much, and I love them all so very much. I don't know even how to explain. How did it come? But it just came. And in 2018, I started to ask. I'm like, I don't know where. Well, probably out of somewhere, but in, I can't explain it necessarily like exactly how I'm pinpointed. But this thought just came in. I was like, What is it being done in hospitals for women? So I begin to, I just literally pick up the phone and begin to call all the hospitals in San Diego. And I just ask, do you have a postpartum support group? That was my question. UCSD did, Sharp Mary Birch did, and Charp uh, Grossmont. So I begin to volunteer at Sharp Grossmont to go and just sit. And if I could be in the postpartum support groups and just be there and see if I could be of any help to help set up to do that. And that's how I begin to kind of get in. And then I begin to do what else is being done, right? And are they still locking up these women? And the answer was, yet, because there's no facility in San Diego for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders that are trained in maternal mental health. If you go to Mesa Vista or any hospital, they are not trained in maternal mental health. Therefore, they're just going to put you in a hold and medicate you as they see fit, and that is it. And that is actually more dangerous, I believe, than staying home with support. Support is what we need, and it's usually what we don't have. And it's very important that we find ways to get more support.
0: So I want to share, first of all, Bea is not a physician. She's not, but she is a maternal mental health advocate. And without advocates, right? then people can't learn. They can't do this. There's a couple of screening tools that you have on your your website, thejourneyoflotus.com. There's a Postpartum Support International recommends universal screening for the presence of prenatal or postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. Using an evidence-based tool such as the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Screen, the EPDS, or Patient Health Questionnaire, which is the PHQ 9. There's no fee. They're self-administered. They're translated into several languages. And you can actually, if you go to her website, if you're wanting to know, like, if you're not sure, you don't know, like, you can go to her website and take these screenings. You know, you also do things with Cal State San Marcos, like we said at the beginning with the nursing school. How has that been? Because obviously you're tapping into something with that that you didn't get. My sister is a nurse practitioner. And so I think that a lot of times doctors are in and out, but they're getting their information from the nurses, from the PAs, from the NPs, like they're getting this information. And oftentimes the nurses are the ones who are doing the, the patient care, Right. They're not the ones necessarily writing to prescription, but they're doing the patient care. So how is this being received in nursing school? Is it something that they're still like, whoa, this happens, or are they just like, we knew this happened and we didn't know like the signs to look for?
1: One thing I want to mention. So those two screenings, those are it's now a law in the United States that at your appointment, when you have after you're having your baby on your first appointment, they have to screen you. Before, it wasn't. So now, and even with those screenings, moms are falling through the cracks still. But those are, you can go, like Jessica said, just and self-administer and just to see where you are. So with Cal State San Marcos, I've been so blessed to be able to work with them. I met one of the directors through a networking event, and that's how networking is fantastic. We get to meet wonderful people. And these nurses are just they're nursing students. So I always ask them, where do you want to work? Right. There's a lot of ED, you know, emergency department, or they want to be in cardiology or they want to be in oncology and things like that. And I always tell them, you are going to see it, especially if you're in the ER, you will see these cases. If you're in cardiology and you don't think you need this information, you probably will because you may see a pregnant mom who has a heart condition or a mom who just gave birth to a baby who has a heart condition. They're going through massive stress. And rather than saying, I'm so sorry, here are some resources. You can see the signs. So there is being very well received actually in all the presentations that I do is being very, very well received. They um, ask a lot of questions. They often show like, Oh, I didn't know that could happen, and often it goes into. I think somebody in their family had it, or I think a friend. They do engage, and they ask very valuable questions of like, "How will you treat somebody?" You know, what what we recommend. And again, I'm not a physician. I'm not a therapist. I'm just somebody who has lived through it and who has. Tool so you're not going out there blindly because it is wonderful to send them good vibes. And I'm all about the energy and good vibes, but good vibes are not going to save that mom from that roof or from committing a tragedy. So we need to have resources rather than saying, I'm so sorry that that's happening to you. But if you know, like Postpartum Support International, it's a site, it's postpartum.net is their website. Here in San Diego, we have the Postpartum Health Alliance the postpartumhealthalliance.org. And that's an organization, a nonprofit here in San Diego that you can call at any time. And we have volunteers 24 seven, you can call and say, I think I'm experiencing something that's going on. And I would like to speak to a therapist. Then we take your insurance. We need to know where you live here in San Diego County, what insurance you have, and we find you a therapist. Let's say you don't have insurance because not everybody has insurance. We still find you help. So whatever is it that you, especially with therapists or psychiatrists that you're looking for, we can find you somebody that can help you right now.
0: So it, don't it be is- afraid wonderful. to ask for help, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's no. the key is just don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. If you need help, you need help. And it's okay yeah. to, like it takes strength to ask for help. It doesn't take strength to not reach out. It actually takes more strength to ask for help, to know that you cannot do this by yourself.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So just working with Cal State San Marcos has been great. I also had a presentation with the public health nurses here in San Diego, and it was well-received. They are public health nurses, and even though they are well-versed in PMATs and postpartum depression, maternal mental health, they had great questions and just talking about scenarios and how can they do better, right? And how can our community do better? And all of it wiggles down to bringing awareness, to talking about it, to normalizing and not being ashamed or embarrassed in suffering in silence, because that's how things can snowball into a very scary situation for the birthing parent and their child.
0: You know, it's so crazy to me that this is how our bodies work. This is what we were created not to do because not everybody can have a, you know, like I'm not going to be having any kids. And, but I mean, this is what our body was designed if we choose to do it. And the fact that we have to fight so hard from my situation, from, from when we start our periods, like we shouldn't, we need to normalize talking about periods. We need to normalize about talking about painful periods. We need to normalize the things that happen to our bodies when we're pregnant and the hormones and the things that happen. It's like, finally, we're in this age where we're finally talking about it. And how many women years and years and years have suffered in silence. Like it's no longer acceptable to suffer in silence. Do thank you so much. I want to be really mindful of your time and of everything. Course. And I know we could talk like, for, like <laughs> forever about this because I do have so many questions, but go the journey of is D's website. If there's anything else like thrivewellnesscollective.org, postpartumhealthalliance.org, you can connect with D on Instagram at diana.c.bamford. The and those, all of those links will be in the show notes. D, do you want to add anything else in regards to before we kind of close out and everything? I'm just I'm so grateful that you are talking about this cuz to be perfectly honest, because I won't ever go, you know, I mean, I go through my other things, mm-hmm. right? Obviously I have PTSD about my periods and everything. Mm-hmm. Cause I had to stop and like collect myself. Um, was there anything else that you would like to add that we haven't talked about?
1: One way is to find somebody that you trust. If you're going through this and just share with them any feelings that you may have, just begin to have that conversation. If you're having at this moment, Anything that I said resonated with you, even if it's been years after you had a baby, find that friend, find that person that you feel comfortable with and talk about it because talking about it is a way of healing it. And I will encourage all your listeners to maybe go and talk to their mom, their aunt, their sister, their grandma, and ask them if they ever experienced any of this because you will be surprised that once you begin to speak about it, How many of them suffer in silence? And even though it's been many, many years later, they can heal that part. Rather than ignoring it and pushing it away, they can heal. Just love heals it all. It really does. And if you can learn to love yourself a little more by just bringing awareness to your feelings and knowing that all your feelings are extremely valid, it's going to help you tremendous. It's going to help you tremendous. And you deserve peace you deserve love and you deserve the comfort of knowing that it's okay for you to have a safe space to talk about this
0: yeah well thank you so much i really appreciate it and mi gente please please you know if you have any of these feelings and even if you're not pregnant or postpartum if you're having these types of feelings please reach out i i understand like i really do understand more than i've ever shared But, you know, if you are having feelings of of self-harm or harming others, seek help. It's not embarrassing. It's not like, don't be embarrassed. Like Dee said, try and find somebody who you trust, who can maybe, maybe you don't know where to go. And, you know, there's all kinds of, of resources online that we'll try and connect with on the show notes. Thank you so much. If you were able to listen to this whole episode. Thank you, because we know it's not an easy topic to discuss. And so we appreciate you, Dee. Thank you so much for
1: having me. I'm just very honored and grateful to be here and just be able to reach uh, more people to talk about this subject that is so important to destigmatize.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And until next time, Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine & Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at thewineandchisme on Instagram at the wine and chisme podcast on facebook remember if you want to hear more wine and chisme please subscribe rate and review five star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more until next time saludos